Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast. I'm your host, James Huang. Joining us from Sydney, as usual, is fellow tech editor, Dave Rome. And today, thanks to a nice little turn in the weather here in Boulder, Colorado, I'm actually sitting outside on this lovely winter day here, not all that far away from Cycling Tips editor-in-chief, Kaylee Fretz, and pro mechanic, Zach Edwards of the Boulder Group Hello. How's everyone doing today? It's 50 degrees warmer than it was like 36 hours ago. <laughs> like literally. It's and still it's below only, freezing. And it's only 30. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're all very happy. Yeah. <laughs> Zach, it's good to have you back on the show. Yeah. Glad to see you were able to recover from that crazy chain waxing incident that we talked about two weeks Happens. ago. <laughs> yeah. Three cheers for modern medicine. I almost <laughs> mentioned that chain waxing incident uh, in our debate on the weekly podcast this week as a reason not to wax a chain because what if you fall in a human-sized vat of chain wax? I mean, it was pretty touch and go for a while for Zach. Bathtub-sized crockpot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, luckily, you only had that thing on low instead of high. So. Yeah. So it was mostly just picking wax out of your hair. Yep. All good now. Mostly survived. It yeah. just started snowing on us. <laughs> this is how cold it's been in Colorado the last couple of days. It's snowing on us, and we're outside like it's stoked. August and a beach day. <laughs> so stoked. Pretty much. We, we are, we are yeah, pretty much I'm, literally sitting on a slab of ice at the moment. Yep. Yeah, I'm surprised you guys aren't wearing jackets. It's, it looks really cold. I'm just surprised to see you all in Cycling Tips t-shirts. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, tank tops, actually. Yeah. Limited edition cycling tips, tank tops, and board shorts. Yeah. It's the look. Uh, Dave, Dave, how are you feeling? You're sounding a little under the weather. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I uh, managed to pick up a COVID imitator, um, otherwise known as the common cold. Um, yeah, no, it's it's kind of wiped me out, but I'm, I'm on the mend. But uh, just bad timing because there's a, a bunch of products that I'm meant to be testing and haven't been anywhere near a bike for a week. Well, luckily for you, we're going to make you basically do all the talking today, so... Good, good. <laughs> yeah, Happy perfect. To. Yeah, well, let's get into it. He just sounds really deep and knowledgeable. His voice, he's like James Earl Jones. It's it's sad that I need to get a need to get sick in order to sound knowledgeable. But anyway, um, I understand. We can maybe figure out a way to like just like have this as a switchable filter for you or something. So hmm. we we can figure that out, Dave. Now that we know that you are alive and conscious, let's get into the news. First yes. and foremost, we need to talk about the latest UCI rider position bans. Because in case you were not aware, the UCI has just banned the super tuck position, whereby you know the rider basically sits on the top tube and crouches down super low over the bars. Uh, famously illustrated by Chris Froome in the 2016 Tour de France, and the UCI also banned the forearm, uh, the forearms position, where you know you're on a road bike and you sort of just are resting your forearms on the bar tops and grabbing onto nothing. Mm -hmm. um, the invisible arrow bars. Yeah, I mean, the that... puppy paws is what all the, the Brits were calling them, which <laughs> oh, is not, yeah, a, that's a new yeah, one. Yeah, that to is me. a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah that does kind of look one. like my dog when, when, when she's begging. <laughs> huh, okay. <laughs> well, I think, I, I think you can probably pretty easily make the argument that the puppy paws position is kind of sketchy. I mean, you're yeah. not holding on to anything. Not yeah. great. Yeah. Um, the super tuck, though, is definitely a little more controversial. Uh, with the super tuck position, there's unquestionably a lot of really big gains to be made when you're descending. Um, mm -hmm. And cycling aerodynamic specialist Swissside recently estimated that that gain can be as much as 135 watts at 70 kilometers per hour, or roughly 30 seconds per 10K of descending, relative to just a more conventional descending position. Um, I mean, the forearm thing isn't as dramatic, and Swissside estimated that you're saving you know, between 24 and 41 watts, depending on the breakaway speed, which definitely is not nothing, especially when you're going at that speed. Um, but, you know, with those numbers, it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty obvious. Pro riders are not going to want to give either of those up very easily. Um, mm. You know, for example, we recently saw Chris Froome try out a pinky position where he's, you know, he's on the saddle. His arms are resting. His forearms are resting on the on the bar tops kind of as you're not supposed to do, but his pinkies are just barely grabbing the tops of the hoods. So, I mean, that that's something that we can maybe debate on another day because that seems still pretty sketchy. Uh, but a question that a lot of readers brought up in regards to the super tuck is, since riders are no longer allowed to sit on the top tube, is it possible that we might finally see dropper seat posts in oh. pro road racing? I hope so. <laughs> hmm. I, I very much doubt it. Okay, but here's here's the issue, right? Is like the only time you're gonna need a super tuck is if you went uphill first, which means that they're not gonna want bikes with dropper posts. Which 
even a light dropper post, you're going to really struggle to get particularly a modern disc brake road bike to 6.8 yeah. kilos with a dropper. Yeah, I, I was reminded of a, a, a sort of height adjustable post that Ivan Basso ran a couple years ago. I think it was an FSA product it or, was or a FSA. prototype of some sort. Yep. You basically turned it, like literally grabbed the seat post and turned it and it put the saddle up like, I don't know, five or 10 millimeters, something like that. Like sort of a giant version of that might be more interesting, you know, without the, without the toggle at the handlebars, without any of that stuff. Well, the thing is for that sort of, for that sort of device to be effective, it would, it would have to operate really like a mountain bike dropper seat post. I mean, it would have to be quick. You'd have to have a lot of drop. I mean, to, to mimic, to basically get the effect of that super tuck position without actually sitting on the top tube, that saddle needs to basically drop right on top of the top tube. Yeah. Um, and that sort of mechanism that Basso was using that year, I mean, a lot of people sort of like widely describe that as a dropper post, but it very much was not actually a dropper post. Um, but if you did have a dropper seat post and that saddle just dropped all the way onto the top tube, kind of on demand, I mean, yes, you could, you know, regain those that arrow advantage on descending, but it just doesn't seem like it would make sense anywhere else. This feels somewhat sacrilegious to even be discussing. Like, let's yeah. be honest. I mean, this is like, <laughs> we're talking about road racing machines with dropper posts. Granted, granted, if you'd asked a cross-country racer 10 years ago this exact same question, they would give you the exact same answer. They'd be like, absolutely not. Don't need it. Never had it. Don't want it. This feels different, though. It yeah, does. This <laughs> um, there's, there's a few logistical issues here, which is very few bikes being raced at this level have a round seat post. So you're basically looking at brands, the, the manufacturers effectively having to create custom dropper posts to fit their, their aero-shaped frames or their, their, their frames that are using a D-shaped seat post. So... There's just, but that's I great. Just the bikes, when the, <laughs> exactly, once yeah. the dropper quits working, then you have to get a new bike yeah, because they don't exactly. offer parts for it anymore. Yeah. So you're just talking about all these development costs that I just don't think we're ever going to see for such a niche purpose. Um, and then obviously there's the weight. I mean, I don't believe that you'd have to have it wired through the bike. I think you could just go to like a real old school style dropper with the lever underneath the seat, like the, the first gener generations of the, the Joplin or the Maverick seat posts or the gravity droppers, but... Michael Jackson style. Yeah. Yep. But uh, I just I just don't see this happening. I mean, as as Kaylee said, weight is a significant factor here, and you're you're adding a minimum of two hundred grams to the the top half of the bike. So you know that's that's swing weight, which every time they're out of the saddle, that's going to be felt. This just seems like a classic bike industry example of making a product that people aren't asking for like you're solving a problem that doesn't exist and no one wants this well no well if if, if this is something if this is something that would solve a problem that doesn't exist and that pretty much guarantees that it will be produced doesn't exactly it? Doesn't it? Yeah. yeah i can't wait arrow dropper posts height right we just need height rights yeah. that's all we need with we like need... a carbon fiber leaf spring thing yeah carbon fiber leaf spring height rate what if it not only dropped what if it also flung back so you could still have good leg extension and pedal properly <laughs> I don't think anyone else here, aside from me, is old enough to remember this, but there was a device called the Power Post back in the day. We're getting snowed on. Getting, um, there was a device like, called the Power Post back in the day, which which was not it was not snow. a telescoping it was not a telescoping dropper post, but it was like this parallelogram linkage thing. It was massive. It was super heavy. It was complicated. Like it came it came about way earlier than we're totally getting snowed on. We're getting like small hailed on. Oh. It's not even. It's like, it's, look at these. They're not snowflakes. It's like snowballs. <laughs> it's like tiny snowballs. Very strange. Um, Anyway, so there was this thing called the power post. It was like this big parallelogram thing. And, you know, it had a remote lever on the bar. And because it didn't telescope straight down, it basically like swung forward or swung back. And the power post actually would be sort of like the perfect way to replicate a super tuck because it would also get the, the saddle slightly further forward and it would drop right on top of the top tube. So like functionally, that would make more sense, but it would still be really heavy. Here's yeah. the thing. Here's the thing. If the super tuck actually does give you 30 seconds per 10k have we done the math yet on whether 200 grams let's say you have a 10k climb and a 10k descent are you losing 30 seconds on the way up nope probably not but this is the same as i said before i've said the same before about aero bikes and aero helmets like if you're one rider off the front doing a super tuck the people behind you are also doing a super tuck so like if everyone's super tucking then no one's super tucking <laughs> like, <laughs> Yes. Like you're not that. gaining advantage over yes. the other person. That is very that is very true. Can we just come out and say that no one 
no one should be putting dropper posts on their road bikes probably unless yes. you no, like. i feel like this so should just, never be a talk, talked about subject again like uh, just leave <laughs> it alone just let it be forgotten about to be perfectly clear i raised this question just because we had i had gotten so many questions about this from readers so i felt like we had to talk about it personally i don't see this ever 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 happening for a variety of reasons what what I do see happening is that that FSA style post with the five ten mil of drop, which um, even Barso is using. I believe that's all about um, fit changing. So basically, yes, your fit correct. changes when when you when you're climbing, your your position yep. on the bike effectively changes, and that seat post would allow you to maintain a basically an ideal position when when doing a an extended seated climb. Um, yep. This is something Adam Hansen's spoken about how. Your your setback and your saddle position does change with um with the gradient you're climbing at. So yeah, I mean it's it's certainly something that I I see potentially coming back, but not at all for super tuck and aerodynamic reasons. I agree. So also banning it was kind of stupid. We'll leave that for a different podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm I'm going to agree. I think this, I think banning the super tuck was stupid. But you know, hey, we we do not make those decisions and. The UCI clearly chose that hill to die on instead of all sorts of other more important things. So, <laughs> so be it. All right, next bit of news. So the other day we showed off a completely bonkers custom mountain bike made by Scandinavian shop mechanic Gustav Gullholm, better known by his Instagram handle of Dangerholm. Uh, Gustav has done a whole bunch of crazy builds in recent years, many of which were focused on super low weight uh, and polished everything um but this one's instead concentrated on making a mountain bike that he felt kind of was more you know mimicking the full integration of modern road bikes and he did things like custom electronic shifters with all the guts and batteries hidden inside the bar custom routing running through the bar stem and the steer tube and just all this crazy stuff that you would just never see on a regular production bike now there are reasons we don't see those on regular production bikes because the practicality of all this is highly debatable mm. but then again that's the case with road bikes too because i mean yeah i mean all that hidden stuff makes bikes a little bit more aerodynamic but as zach will attest doesn't exactly make them easier to work on um that all said i mean this is not the first time someone has tried to do a whole bunch of integration on mountain bikes i mean magura not too long ago also featured a uh, a concept cockpit that had fully internal hydraulic hoses do we think this might be where the mountain bike world might go not for Probably, a long time. But I hope not. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, I think things like having ETAP on a mountain bike make it quite a bit easier. Well, right? so that but mountain bikers they like, like to change their bar roll and like swap out the stem and like do all these different things that you just can't do. And I think most core mountain bikers too like to be able to for the most part work on their own stuff. And thus you just get rid of that. Yeah. I, I, I think we'll see a lot of this stuff. If if we see all this type of integration, it'll happen in the e bike market first. Um, I think that market is much more accepting of uh, the bikes being a nightmare to work on, um, as evident by basically all existing e mountain bikes. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think like, you know, integrated master cylinders inside of handlebars like that Magura um, brake design and things like that, I think probably will eventually make it to the e bike market. And I think the more traditional mountain bike market will be much more reluctant. Yeah. I mean, on the road, you get the, the arrow argument. Like, you can, as much as you want to say it's a pain to have all of it internally routed, like, there's still that argument. But on the mountain bike, that that doesn't matter. Unless like, you're Nino. Like, unless you're racing cross country and you're averaging, you know, 27 kilometers an hour. But Nino has had like external that. cables and he's still winning and it seemed to not slow him down. I Very mean, you're, true. You're, you're talking about a person who also has famously pretty much refused to run a dropper post in cross country racing. But that's yeah. also because his skill level is beyond like 999 yeah. <laughs> out of, you know, 999 and a half people. <laughs> I, mean, I remember I speaking, I remember speaking with Nino Schroeder at uh, Cairns World Champs um, about that very fact. And the course designer, Glenn Jacobs, also made the downhill course. It's like, this is the year I've made the course completely crazy. So all the riders are going to be forced to use dropper posts. And I spoke to Nino about that, and he's like, nah, cross-country courses aren't technical enough for dropper posts yet. Yeah, because he was like, here, hold my beer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's interesting that there's been a lot less sort of uptake of, of electronic in general on mountain bikes relative to 
road bikes and maybe that's just the crew that i ride in i just i don't tend to see it as much and i think that's maybe indicative of just general attitudes towards this type of thing kaylee have you priced out a replacement rear derailleur for an electronic Ooh. mountain bike <laughs> i have and i believe many others have as well and i think that's probably why we don't see a whole lot of xtr di2 out in the wild i think if the goal is to clean up the cockpits with all of this which is admirable like everyone likes nice tidy front end then like let's do away with the dual remote lockout first like <laughs> yeah. just get rid of two wires that don't need to exist like you basically if, just cratered scott's entire business plan yes yes yeah. like or partner with rock shocks to make access wireless something but like hmm. or make it yeah uh, hmm. or, <laughs> if you read the patent documents there's or there is that or like works. make a more efficient suspension platform that isn't just a single pivot that you don't need a band-aid of dual remote lockouts on your bike yeah. like if you want a clean cockpit get rid of that first well that's that would that's be kind nice. of what there's a lot of was, there's a lot of cables and wires happening in the yeah, front ends of that's kind of what this bike days. was trying to achieve it's using fox live valve which is automatic um lock but even that stuff like but that stuff messy. looks so cool yeah or, yeah that stuff's terrible there's just wires everywhere and yeah. sensors and it's like yeah no like people don't went, want this he, cool in concept a huge amount of work to make that look as clean as possible and it still looks hideous um, correct and you know that's a fully wired system with just wires running everywhere you can't run a wire through the through the middle of a suspension fork at the moment so he's got this big bulky wiring kit running down the back of the suspension fork so yeah i mean it's it's not pretty but where that technology could go in future is is quite interesting yeah exactly you were saying i mean you you can make the argument on road bikes that you know there is some sort of functional improvement by hiding all this stuff you can say oh this bike is faster um yeah mountain bikes you can't really make that argument but to me, I feel like ultimately a lot of people buy those super integrated road bikes, not necessarily because they are faster, but it's just because to them, they look faster. They yeah. look cleaner. And yes, I, I agree that for, you know, a lot of the, most of the core mountain bike people who do like to work on their own stuff, because I mean, let's face it, stuff on your mountain bike breaks, you know, not infrequently, or at least just needs to be tweaked or whatever. Um, but for a lot of other people, especially people who just never work on their own stuff and, you know, who have a lot of money, who just kind of want something super sweet. If you were to show them two, two mountain bikes, one of which has cables running all over the place, the other one has, you know, a super, super clean and integrated look. I mean, I dare say, like, I hate to even put this out there, but I dare say that that person is going to want the more integrated bike. I, I Yeah. I mean, I think in cross country bikes, I think that that audience, that buyer is interested in that and that's why i think that this, this sort of thing is gonna it's coming right it's i feel like there's a middle ground like between the six cables of your dual remote lockout <laughs> cross-country yes. bike and your like let's say a, a normal full suspension bike with axis where you have two brake hoses and that's it like yeah there's an in-between uh, between going fully everything hidden like yeah. i think that's still really clean or the chisel i've got right now which has, yeah. has no dropper but as a result just has two brake lines and a rear derailleur cable that's cinched up next to the, one of the brake lines. It's super clean, like yeah. really, really nice looking. I mean, I if should... we add a front derailleur and a dropper and the remote lockouts, then it's just like, <laughs> I mean, I, no I, one wants that. I should point out that, you know, we are starting to see this sort of integration already because yeah. I mean, Dave, you just reviewed that Canyon Exceed cross country hardtail. Yeah. And now and even that, more so, that I don't, front that, end already has that. I don't yeah. understand the point of that at all. Like what is, you're moving the cables up three inches onto the top of the head tube instead of going in the side of the head tube. Yeah. And you're like, now it's just more of a pain in the ass to work on with the bearings. Okay, I, think, and I think we just established that there, especially in the mountain bike world, there is basically zero functional advantage to be, to do all this stuff. I mean, for that, uh, I'm not, I'm not defending it because I, I didn't like it. And I mentioned that in my review, but I have had cable housings rip, like, you know, in a, in the middle of a mountain bike ra race where you, you bodge a corner and your, your bars swing around and you get caught in a stick or whatever and you rip that cable. I think that st style of housing or that system would f pretty much solve that because you've got very little exposed housing. Um, it's a very small amount of bend um, exposed, but it's for me, it's just not worth the hassles. Yeah, and I think too with the suspension fork, you're almost always going to have a front brake hose unless yeah. we like completely yeah. reinvent suspension. Like you're always going to have at least one hose. So. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, no. So that's that's when you have your your linkage fork, and you can run the fork. You can run the hose inside the the main part of you know the main structure of the fork, which isn't going to move. And then you can route that up through the steering tube, and then you know have some little holes drilled here yep. and there, and just drill more and, holes. And, and just to be, yeah, and just just on that canyon, and there's a number of brands doing this, and I think we're going to see more and more of it. Um, 
for me, the bigger the issue is not even the fact that you have to cut some brake hoses in order to replace a top headset bearing, which sucks. The issue is is that on a mountain bike, you often need to drop out the fork for servicing, and that just makes it really difficult because you then to put the fork back in, you're fighting all those cables to, you know, get them all lined up back into the the top race of the headset and get them all lined up perfectly before you can put it all back together. And it just it's kind of it's just more work than it needs to be. All right. Well, I think we can probably go on record right now as saying that all four of us are in agreement that while we probably are fully expecting that mountain bikes, at least on the cross-country side, probably will go in this direction to some extent, uh, all four of us think it's a terrible idea. Yeah, don't do it. Bike industry, if you're listening, don't do it. So bike industry, I know that you have already, you know, pretty much finalized designs for 2023 and whatnot. Start over. And some, of, <laughs> and some of you probably have already integrated all that stuff. But yeah, sorry. Like we are telling you right now that we are not going to be very happy with these things. No. And, and I dare say, I dare say our friends and colleagues at Pink Bike will be a lot less diplomatic about this than we are right now. I mean, I feel like this is going to be one of those things where like when Pressfit came out, they're like, this is going to be better for everyone. And then here we are five years later, back to threaded bottom brackets. Like, <laughs> like it's all going to go internal. And then, yeah, everyone's going to be like, this is terrible. Please don't. It's snowing on us quite hard now. Uh, it is. Just it is. a snow it's, update it's, it's for getting, our listeners out there. It's getting a little, it's bit, kind of sunny. Getting a little bit colder too. Yeah. Oh. We'll make I, it. I may actually yeah. have to pull out that propane heater. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Last bit of news before we move on to Ask a Mechanic. Uh, Australia recently successfully pulled off its national road championships. And while I couldn't really tell you a whole lot of anything about the actual racing, um, I presume a bunch of people won and a bunch more people that lost. Was very hard. Um, <laughs> it was probably very hard. Uh, there was one bit of tech that was super interesting. Uh, elite men's time trial winner Luke Plapp showed up with a super sweet tricked out giant Trinity TT with all sorts of go fast goodies, uh, you know, like KDX's latest uh, rear disc and four-spoke carbon wheels with tubed clinchers. Uh, he had a pretty sweet-looking Aussie-inspired paint job with a painted-to-match SLF motion hyper-aero oversized rear derailleur pulley cage. And, of course, a waxed chain for maximum efficiency gains. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with it for max watts. <laughs> uh -huh. Max watts, I'm That's okay true. with it. Yep. If you're going to go try to win a national championship in a time trial, wax your chain. Oh, by the way, vote for me. Um, yeah. Daily driving, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, I mean, I would say the best part on his bike was the custom 3D-printed titanium aero bar extensions that he had on there, which supposedly saved 13 to 15 watts at race pace relative to conventional extensions that otherwise would have had them in the same position. Uh, I mean, granted, these things were wicked expensive at, I think the estimate was $6,000. Um, so Dave, you were, not, you were not at the race, but we have a bunch of information from our men on the ground there, Matt Deneef, yeah, who did an interview with the person who created these extensions for Luke. So let's hear from him. So yeah, so Matt spoke with uh, Ken Ballhouse, who's uh, I guess an Aussie-based bike fitter and aerodynamics expert in a sense. So he works with a bunch of triathletes and, and Ironman athletes. Um, Ken also recently started a company called Sync, which is a, a small Melbourne-based aero components brand. Uh, and as you'll hear here with Matt, uh, he's doing some cool stuff with 3D titanium printing. A couple of weeks back, 20-year-old Luke Plapp won Australia's time trial title. He was eligible to race in the under-23 ranks, but decided to race in the elite category at the suggestion of Richie Port. That turned out to be a pretty great decision. Plapp turned heads that day, not just with his winning ride, but because of the bike he did it on. His giant Trinity TT rig didn't just look flash with its green and gold paint job, but also had some nifty 3D-printed titanium handlebar extensions. Those extensions were the work of a small Melbourne bike fit and aero testing brand called Sync Ergonomics. I caught up with the company's co-founder, Ken Ballhouse, to chat about those bar extensions and how they've been a year in the making. A quick note before we begin. At one point, Ken mentions a guy called Tom. That's Tom Benton, another rider that was on Sync's titanium bar extensions at the Aussie Road Nationals. When, when Luke won under 23s last year, we had a chat afterwards bit of an informal chat about, you know, what was it going to take to, to repeat that process? Not necessarily winning in a late. That was, that was never the goal until a week before nationals. But yeah, just that question of where do we go next? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we've worked with Luke, well, pretty much from the start of sync and, and before the start of sync. So he's always been an athlete that we've done stuff with. Okay. Um, we appreciate his feedback and his abilities as a rider and mm -hmm. as someone that can, 
help us test products as well. Yeah. So yeah, it was a simple question of what do we need to do next to you know keep the ball rolling and keep making you faster, and that was you know that was the no-brainer. And so, what does that look like in terms of over the course of that year? Did you get him in for some testing and fit and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, we pretty much had all that already. Yeah, right. We, it was the idea wasn't to change his position from where he was; it was just to build a product around his position. Right. So to support that position and just to do it more effectively. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess that foundation was already there. It yeah. was just a case of, of just building a better product and using some different manufacturing techniques to do that. So what was the process of, of then designing the product from his measurements? How did you go about that? Yeah, so measurements is, is the starting point. And I guess in a way it's almost easy to do stuff within the framework of the UCR rules because you've got very strict parameters on what you can and can't do. So straight away that limits things that you might want to explore otherwise. So in terms of the basic parameters, of the length of the product and the dimensions, we kind of had that already. So the next step was just to do a 3D scan and, and really map the forearm and allow us to create that surface that that is, you know, truly his. Yeah, and so design in CAD from there kind of thing? Yep, yeah, exactly. And then 3D printed titanium, right? Yep. Bar extensions? Yep. Where do you get that done? Where's that? So here in Melbourne. Yeah, right. Is yep. that with Bastion or somewhere else? Or? No, no, they, I don't believe they have a build chamber that's big enough. So yeah, when, right. when you're talking 3D printing, you're talking like the size of the part is the, yep. I guess, the key question. And can you fit that within the chamber that it's being printed in? Yeah. I don't believe that the Bastion system will cater for that. I haven't actually asked them, but right. knowing what technology they use, I haven't seen one that will cater for that. So we're kind of, we are limited in terms of who we can use. Yeah. Um, and the machine that will that will print for those needs. And what sort of testing did you then do once the product was printed up? Was there a few different iterations of what we see here? There's, yeah, uh, I've lost count of how many, how many <laughs> versions there, there have been. What you see is pretty much what we had in mind from the onset, um, the things like the bolting grips, you know, that was basically the, um, the first consideration that we wanted to include. We wanted to have a grip that bolted into the end of the extension mm -hmm. rather than just having a continuous extension right to the end where the shifter goes in. Yeah. We wanted to be able to separate those components. And why is that? Because it means we can reduce the overall length, yeah. which then gives us more flexibility with our printer. Like literally one of the designs that we're about to press play on at the moment is the maximum length that we can fit within the printer. Right. So having that extra kind of 75, 80 mils mm -hmm. of, of length that we've taken off the titanium part gives us the ability to then print it. The overall layout is somewhat similar to what we had in mind originally. Throughout the process, there've been a couple of challenges that forced us to change the design of the part. So all of the design reiterations were, were basically around that, right. around the feedback from what the printer couldn't, couldn't do and yeah. how we had to design around that to yeah, produce what you see now. So how many of those of the actual units do you reckon you produced before you got to this one? That's the first set we've produced out of titanium. Literally, they came off the printer on the Friday before the race. Right, so you would have done like prototypes in other materials. Yeah, there. in plastics. Right. Yep. And how much testing had Luke done on that shape, either with plastic or with titanium before the time trial today? We'd done two versions in plastic that he had seen. Yeah. And that we'd put his forearms over. Yeah. And so his first ride on the, the Taiwans would have been... Just so a few days Monday, before. Monday before nationals. Yeah, so two days before. Yep. <laughs> yep. The bike wasn't built until one o'clock Sunday night. Jeez. So it was, yeah, it was all very last minute <laughs> <laughs> pulling it together. But like, I mean, everything is identical in terms of measurements, mm. in terms of, you know, saddle position, where the arm cups are relative to the seat, where the end of the extension is, the angle of the grips, all that's the same as what he's written. Right. Until this. Yeah. So the only change is he's now got support for his forearm. Yeah. As much as it sounds uh, really extreme that you've mm -hmm. built a bike, you know, a few days before the race and then raced it, it's, yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah. So you were saying before the, all the front end is, is all from sync from the base bar up, is that right? Yeah. So we now produce for, for any of the time trial bikes that we provide components for, we yeah. produce every piece above the base bar. Okay. So yeah, that's, I guess, ultimately what sync has grown into is producing those parts. Mm -hmm which allow us to fit products that, that we want to fit to, yeah, more bikes. Yeah. And achieve the same outcome. One of the biggest challenges with working with time trial bikes and triathlon bikes is just the variety of configurations for everything above the base bar. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So like the width of the of the stack towers, right. all of that stuff throws a heap of challenges at us. So I guess what we've worked hard over the last 12 months on is just trying to standardize that as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So every base bar has its own unique version of that piece, right. which sets us at a, a standard measurement for our, for our spacer stack, which then allows us to standardize the components on top of that. Mm. Do you have a sense of how much of a, a leg up this technology has given him last week? Yeah, look, obviously we're so, it was produced so close to the race that we haven't had a chance to test it properly. We've actually got better data on Tom than we do on Luke at the moment. Yep. Um, and for Tom, that was yeah somewhere between 13 and 15 watts. Okay, which is huge yeah. in that context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, years ago, Team Sky kind of gave us the term marginal gains. Mm. You know, when you add all of those little pieces up, you'd you end up with a, you know, significant advantage. For sure. So whether it's things like the aero skewers or use of ceramic bearings or treatment process for a chain or an oversized pulley wheel system. Yeah. Yeah. By the time you, you add all those gains up, you end up with something meaningful. So how do you measure that with, um, with Tom, for example? How did you get to that? Yeah. So that's uh, basically field error testing. So testing on the bell drum. Yep. So we use some software that allows us to calculate CDA for the system, mm-hmm. bike plus rider based off how fast they're going, how much power they're pushing and their air density at the time. Yeah. And so is it just simply a case of lower CDA just leads to that increase in power? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So how does how do these extensions do that? Is it just kind of bringing them further forward or what is it about the, the position? Yeah, so I guess there's two aspects to that. It's first of all, providing a better position for the athlete to be. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about aero drag on, on the system, basically 90% of your resistance to moving forward is aero drag. Yep. 30% of that's the bike, 70% is the rider, mm-hmm. give or take. So if you can improve someone's position, that's where you stand to make the biggest gains in aero performance. Yep. But then going beyond that, it's obviously how the air flows over that assembly. Yeah. So controlling the airflow is, is the other aspect to that in, improvement in performance right. or that lowering of CDA. So with this, for example, we now have one structure that the air is flowing over. So it's the extension and the forearm is, is now one structure as opposed to there being two distinct structures. Okay. The, so if you look at a traditional setup, it's an extension and then a forearm, mm-hmm. two round objects passing through the air, both pretty inefficient. Yeah. So it's that control of airflow that, that gives us the other, other gain. Is that because your arms kind of sit more in into these extensions? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's literally creating that one body, and then because we're engineering that structure, you know, from the ground up, we can then control the shape of it as well. So it's not just a round tube passing through the air anymore. It's it's an airflow shape. Yeah. So we've got Tom Benton's bike next to there as well. Are there other athletes you guys have been working with? Uh, for UCI, not for these handlebars. Not at this stage. We've got. We've actually got a list of people that have now inquired about the yeah, okay. yeah. Um, But yeah, we've got a, two sets of triathlon bars that we're about to produce. One set, which will pop up in a couple of weeks. Um, and then another set, which will be a few weeks after that. So yeah, we've got some triathletes that we're, that we're working with on some, some pretty cool bars. Mm. And in that case, we're not, we're not limited by the UCR regs, so they're pretty extreme. Yeah. These ones, are, they're cool but it's not taking the, the printing technology to its full capability. Mm. So when we do the, some of the triathlon ones, it's, yeah, it's- You can it's, go a bit wild yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. So the cost of these bars, the extensions is like, you read on the 6K. Yep. Where, where does the cost man come? Is it manufacturing? Is it the timing, getting position stuff set up? Or where does the cost Yeah, most, mostly in manufacturing. Yeah, right. Mostly in printing costs. Buying the titanium powder and all yep. that manufacturing stuff. Yep. And I guess that price that we put up at the moment reflects how much it costs us at the moment. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily reflect what it's going to cost us in the future. And I guess given that these are the first two sets that we've done, mm. you know, we don't, we don't have years of experience yeah. in, in how, um, how minimal we can go with the product. Because obviously the less titanium you put in, the lower the cost is mm. to some extent. Um, these we've produced on, I guess on the idea that they cannot fail in any scenario, like they have to be overbuilt. Yeah, right. Um, so definitely the next versions that we do will have a lot less titanium powder in them, thinner walls. Yep. Um, they'll be a lighter product. Yeah, but just, I guess at, at this point in, in that product's development, we just weren't willing to go 
that step just yet. Yeah, for sure. Is there any um, scalability available to you guys or because it's such a custom product, you're always going to have those high overheads? Right? Yeah, they can print one set at a time, so it's not really going to change. Yeah. Yeah, there, there is no mass production capability in not in this type of 3D printing. Yeah. Uh, and these two obviously both custom designed for the riders. Yep. And do you see that always being the case with this particular product or would you, is there, could you see yourselves doing a one that's more of like a regular kind of shape? Or? Yeah, a standard one. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, the key variable there is, so when you're talking UCI measurements, it's mm -hmm. length from the bottom bracket. Okay. That's, yep. that's the thing that changes or that, that's the thing that's constant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're allowed a certain measurement from the BB, but the thing that changes is where the extensions start. Okay. Right. So different different frame reach length, different yeah. handlebar reach length. So for every bike, there would need to be a different length extension to get to that same endpoint. Yep. So it's not yes in terms of the shape, mm -hmm. no in terms of the overall length of the extension. Right. Yeah, if, so that makes it tricky. Yeah. If you're talking a couple of millimeters, and you know someone's happy to sacrifice a couple of millimeters. Mm -hmm. Say for example, one um, one bike has a two millimeter shorter reach measurement and the same, the same stem length and your extensions end up being two millimeters short of the maximum length that's allowed, mm. then sure, it's two millimeters. Like yeah. you're not really going to feel that. But I guess in this case where the shifters end up are literally the longest they can be on the millimeter. So. Yeah. All right. These things sound super cool. Uh, they're also wickedly expensive at about $6,000. But let's just assume that the costs come down a lot as the cost of 3D printing is, is tending to do. What do we think is the likelihood that these sorts of things become kind of the norm for high level time trial and you know probably even triathlon racing? I mean, it's already, I would say already there. Like there's a number of companies in the UK doing custom more carbon, carbon side of things, carbon yeah. ones. And then like all of Ineos is on 3D printed tie extensions. Technically UCI and, legal. Yeah. And illegal, then not UCI legal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go to the track side, like the stuff, the stuff that's been happening for years. Like it's just how much do you want to spend on it? Right. But I think it's cool. Yeah. But it, I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is like, do we think it might trickle down to more of an amateur level? Just assuming you have that kind of money. Oh, I for mean, sure. Yeah. If you're like, I mean, I've built like basically $40,000 TT bikes and it's like, Dear God, yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. it's like, at that point, you're like, what's another five grand to have some custom, custom extensions. Yeah, for sure. like, I'd say, yeah, I'd say it is the amateur level spending the huge money on the, on TT bikes. I mean, that's, that's already very much the case. I mean, the only, the only people for a while there, like I, I used to work with BMC well over a decade ago and, um, the only people buying the TTO one, which is a Swiss made mega dollar time trial bike were, were amateurs. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's always been the case and it will continue to be the case that the market for these $6,000 extensions are the amateurs. Like, do you need it? No, no, but will you spend the money? Yes, definitely. If you've got an extra six grand like, burning a hole in your pocket. Why the hell not? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that these people just need to call up our, uh, the head of editorial over at pink bike, Brian Park who's been experimenting with 3D printing as of late. He made himself some pedals. I did. I saw that. I saw <laughs> like, that. Yeah. Very impressive. He could make these things for he, us. He 3D printed the brackets that hold the little acrylic panels or little polycarbonate panels that he made to hold his 3D printer. So <laughs> his 3D printer is essentially already making parts for itself. It's pretty great. Yeah. So Priest well, I mean, is going to print, uh, print a brain. That, like, no joke. I mean, yeah, the 3D printers for, for titanium are uh, a lot but this stuff is going to start trickling down, right? Like those are going to be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And soon you're going to be able to literally go on to, uh, you know, download AeroBar CAD files and print them yourself, right? Bigger question is how long do we think these might stay legal? Because one of the interesting aspects of this bar was how essentially in t instead of making it so that his hand, so that his setup is you know, two forearms and two, you know, semi pseudo cylindrical extensions, which are not necessarily the most aerodynamic thing to be pushing through the air. Instead, you know, what, what we have here is sort of like this unified setup where his forearms are essentially fared and it just sort of creates this one big semi aero shape. And that's basically where all the gains are coming from. I mean, that kind of sounds a lot like a fairing to me. And I mean, given that the UCI in theory, in theory, 
has this idea in their head that they kind of want to, you know, democratize cycling equipment so that, you know, amateurs can race against pros and, you know, all the, you know, the, the lesser, you know, the, the lesser teams, you know, with ha that have a lot less budget can compete with like the Ineos's and the Trek Segafredo's of the world, that sort of thing. How much longer are these things going to be around? I mean, technically, mm -hmm. the UCI already mandates that equipment be publicly available and like not one-off. There's there's look rules at, about that. GB and their which, track program. Yeah, which they basically <laughs> ignored. They ignored it for the Olympics. They ignored it on a regular basis. There's also lots of rules about. Well, there's a there's a very sort of clear rule, clearly written rule, vaguely uh, enforced that bans fairings. Which you could say, okay, well, the back of an aero helmet should be banned. But look and, at like any TT bike, and the front brake has a fairing cover over it. Yeah. Like, so, but, and everyone still races that. Kind of a classic, just the UCI selective, uh, selective enforcement issue, and they do it all over the place. And part of it is because the actual rule book is not particularly well put together, and part of it is just because, frankly, I think that they know that a little bit of innovation in these places is probably a good thing, and and they just don't chase all of it. The problem is at some point, which is what you're alluding to, at some point, do they just come in and say, nope, can't do that. And a whole bunch of riders at the start of the Tour de France suddenly don't have aero bars anymore <laughs> or have to swap to some other person's bike that doesn't work or whatever. And we've seen these things happen over and over and over again where people, you know, show up to a TT on a bike that passed the fit inspection last time and it doesn't pass it this time and they have to move their <laughs> yes. saddle or move their bars or something like that. This, this These things happen all the time. And I would, I would say that the chances of that happening with these kind of products is really high sometime in the next couple of years because once the uci notices they'll start clamping down yeah and unfortunately with a 3d printed titanium extension there is not really any shortening of that bar that's happening very easily because what are you going to do just file it down <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> yeah i i think i'm all I'm all for this kind of innovation. And I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes bikes cool. This like, is what, like, the UCI needs to kind of, it needs to change its rules. It doesn't need to just get out of the way, which is what it's been doing. It needs to change the actual rules so that the athletes know that they're not going to change back overnight. That's what needs to happen. And the, the UCI has needed to completely rewrite its technical rulebook for, well, basically since it was written in, like, 1999. And they really need to do it now. Yeah. Um, for those interested in seeing what these look like, then uh, Matt Deneep has a full story about this bike on the site. And it does look really cool. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I guess we'll find out what happens with the 3D printed titanium custom aero bar world. But in the meantime, seeing as how we are sitting out here in what is now turning into a significantly colder Colorado day. Snow uh, stopped though. And yeah, it did stop snowing. And since we have Zach with us today, we need to move on to Ask a Mechanic. I'm ready. Kaylee with all his tips. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Where's that mute this button? Joke, I'm just going to make this joke literally every week. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. You always a hammer. So <laughs> yep, yep. All right. First question comes from Vela Club member Hannah Nicklin, a British expat who now lives in Denmark. So she has a Trek, uh, she has a Trek Crockett with a SRAM Apex 1x11 group set and recently started having problems with her chain jumping off the chain ring when she's in the largest cassette sprockets. So I actually went back and forth with her a fair bit this morning over Slack to get some more information. And it actually looks to me like her chain ring was worn to the point where it's no longer holding onto the chain well at extreme chain angles. So the, you know, what exactly is going on here? It seems like we kind of had that figured out, but this issue brought up a bigger point to me because when I asked her about her chain lube, uh, she said that she was using a wet lube that Adam Kieran of Zero Friction Cycling had previously identified as being exceptionally bad in terms of drivetrain wear. Well, can I now, guess what it is? No, 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 no. Team Lube yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure you know what it is. Um, but, you know, now I know that this is a contentious topic. Vote for me. But um, if you're but in Denmark, I'm assuming it's quite wintry. It is quite wet. wintry. It is I quite don't wintry. think the wax lube is going to work very no, well no, no, for just, very just, long. Just wait, just let, <laughs> let, let me finish. So, whoop. Winter wax. <laughs> so, but even I will admit that, you know, for, you know, the whole immersion waxing thing is not always the best thing if you are riding in a lot of wet weather, which she most definitely is. 
So while the data tells us that waxing is the best way to go in terms of efficiency and drivetrain wear in dry conditions, what about wet weather? Because that's something that we haven't really talked about a whole lot. WD-40. I think just keeping it as clean as you can. Like, yeah. Cle yeah. Keep it clean or just accept that you're going to run the cheapest chaining cassette that you can and replace it regularly. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, I mean, Zach's, yeah. Zach's pretty much spot on. It's like the ideal in wet weather is actually to use a wet, oil-based lube um but then that will collect a lot of grit and bring it into the chain so it's a matter of just keeping up with a, a very consistent cleaning program to make sure that that grit is not staying in the chain and wearing things away that you're resetting right. it and re-lubing the chain every time like um you know every time it gets gritty you're, you're yeah you're doing a full clean and degrease which is a lot of work but it's it's the best way through winter yeah i mean it sounds like she does a fair bit of that for the most part. Uh, like, you know, if she's out for a particularly wet ride, I mean, she said that you know, she lives in an apartment, so she can't wash her bike in like, you know, the backyard or something like that. She does a lot of kind of like car wash, bike washing, um, which is better than nothing, I think. But, you know, Adam has tested an awful lot of dry and wet lubes, and he has certainly found that some wet lubes are better than others and some are particularly bad. So, you know, Dave, you've dug into this a lot. Um, for people who are riding in wet weather, what should they be putting on their chain? Uh, sort of like the the top wet, actual wet lube, like oil-based lube at the moment is um, actually, oh, it was NFS, which is uh, Nix Fiction um, out of the USA, which Silka was also using a version of that and selling it themselves. Um, Silka actually just came out with a new wet lube called uh, Synergistic, I think is what it's called, um, which in theory might even be better from early signs of uh speaking with adam kieran about this stuff uh so yeah i mean that those are probably the two top wet lube choices um otherwise something like morgan blue race oil actually tests reasonably well as well and is cheaper and available everywhere um i mean i would if you're riding a lot i would just like if it were me i would just accept that i'm gonna ride this drivetrain into the ground all winter long until it literally doesn't function and then hope that spring is there and then put new chain and cassette and maybe chain ring on. This is my energy right yeah. here. This is my, this <laughs> <laughs> No, it's like, I mean, the, I think the alternatives, like one option A is you stay on top of your, your maintenance and keep it clean and keep it lubed and all of this and like replace the chain regularly. The other option is just ride it into the ground until it doesn't work and replace all of it. Like, I don't... And put cheap stuff on. Yeah. I mean, honestly, yeah, like gravel like a, bikes... Like a you cheap know, cassette and chain, one hundred and five cassettes, cheap, yeah, yeah, cheap chains. Yeah, I mean that's that's why people live I mean, in the depends. UK and stuff have have winter bikes dedicated winter, winter bikes, bikes yeah. with mm -hmm. you know ten and speed it depends, components. But it depends what crank she has on too. But there, some companies now are making steel narrow wide chain rings that are going to last way longer than an aluminum one. Like an yeah. aluminum one just gets chewed up so quickly. But yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing I'd recommend it, uh, the other thing I recommended to her, and I, I would recommend this to anyone riding a lot in wet weather, is I don't care what people say about them not being cool. Put some mud guards on your bike if you're riding in wet weather a lot. Oh that yeah, will keep they are an, cool. Put them on. Well, well, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I, I think they're. I, well, personally, I think it's cool to not have a giant stripe of freezing water going up your back and <laughs> and a bunch of water just shooting into your drivetrain all the time. So, yeah, I don't care what people say about fenders or mudguards or whatever you want to call them. If you're riding a lot in wet weather, put them on your bike because that's a lot cooler than having your bike just be grounded to nothing. It is. It Just just on this topic, though, it is probably worth quickly discussing the uh, the fact that narrow wide chain rings just don't last as long as more traditional, um, what do you, would you call them? Traditional rings. Narrow, uh, narrow, narrow, narrow. Not, not narrow. Wide. <laughs> wide, wide, narrow, narrow. I don't know. Yeah, narrow, 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 narrow <laughs> rings. Um, narrow infinity. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's just something that mountain bikers figured out years ago and now gravel riders are uh, experiencing the joy of, which is those those narrow wide rings do actually experience wear far earlier than um, than you'd expect and they'll they'll actually won't last as long as a cassette in most cases. Yeah. Especially especially on gravel bikes too a lot compared to mountain bikes because the chain stays are so short so you're putting even more of an angle when you're in in that lowest gear going up a climb for an hour long. And the symptom is you'll launch the chain off the front chain ring which is exactly what's happening to Hannah, right? They, 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 it, they don't get worn into shark teeth like a narrow narrow chain ring. Right, they, but they just, just stop holding on to the I chain. I mean if she has I would this is one thing too I just thought of too. Um, if she's on Apex one by I would suggest running the mountain bike 11 speed one by chains instead of the apex level chain road chain just because they're though for a one by they just seem to last a lot longer and they don't develop the play and in, in between the rollers and stuff there you go 
Ooh, good suggestion. Good suggestion from an actual mechanic. Um, Why, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Kelly wrote that down and snuck it to me. <laughs> Pass, passing notes. Um, this one is gonna definitely going to fire some people up, I think. Jack Hall and Matt Page would like to know Road Boost. Why? What's Road Good Boost? Good question. I don't I don't I don't believe that <laughs> yeah, exists. This is the same it? as same as Dropper. We just don't talk about this. It does. <laughs> it does exist. It's it, we, no, no, we, no, so, no, it doesn't. Remember we said if we it completely ignores existence. That's right. If we don't talk about it, go right. away. Right. Well, you know, I would I would say that I think that, any any road boost bike that comes out, you just don't give any press to, you don't review, you don't yeah. put any at like just. It's too late. We, we broke it. that rule already. I mean that 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 focus that Ronan reviewed a few uh, a few weeks ago that has road boost on it. We we totally just broke our rule. It's no, over. No, that that's a mountain bike with uh, drop bars. Is we just Ronan completely uh, classified it wrongly. It clearly has mountain bike. <laughs> right. Right. Um, oh, by the way, Ronan, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Road boost, in case you're wondering what it is. So it's just so boost on mountain bikes, essentially what they did was they took the drivetrain and they pushed it out, out uh, outward by three millimeters, and then they correspondingly pushed the, the, the dropout on the non-drive side out another three millimeters. So it, so the whole rear hub is six millimeters wider. The whole drivetrain gets pushed out and you have a little bit more room for basically a little bit more tire and drivetrain clearance. And we're starting to see trickles of that on the roadside now. Uh, it's mainly been limited to e-bikes up until now, but we're starting to see it more on on non-motorized bikes. Yeah. Um, presumably for the same reason, but I mean, in my experience, we haven't really needed it, but we're starting to see. I mean, it a I feel like it's more. about time though. Like this happened in the mountain bike world what, five or so years ago, whenever mountain bike boost came out. Like everyone in the bike industry that. had, whenever it was, like maybe. I don't know. Anyways, like everyone across the industry was using 12 by 142 in the rear and 15 by 100 up front, like everyone. And then once everyone adopted that and it was a standard, then someone was like, we're going to improve on this. That was Trek. And then, and then, yeah. So then they just like slowly took over. And now everyone on the roadside, it was kind of like, oh, we're going to use 12 or 15 up front or maybe quick release. And now everyone on the roadside has all adopted 12 mil non-boost. So now that everyone's adopted that, of course we're going to improve on that and make it boost. Because it's the biking industry. Yeah, it's the biking. And I would I would like to hope and imagine that road boost is slightly different than mountain bike boost so that you can't interchange your wheels as well. <laughs> <laughs> because like it, it is in the front wheel because they're doing 12 by 110. It's 12 by 120. Yeah, 12 by 110 yeah. instead of 15 by 110. Yeah. No, I want like 12 by 149.5 on the back. <laughs> like something just different enough. Well, no. So like we need just like I want hub companies to have to retool all of their things. <laughs> yeah. Just so, like, yeah. So we don't need, we don't need full mountain bike boots. We don't need 148 spacing, right? Oh yeah. Let me go. Let's do it like 145. Super mini boost. Yeah. 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 <laughs> One, yeah. <laughs> 146. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Aero, Done. Arrow boost. Yeah. Done. Arrow boost. We fixed it. Yeah. 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 Solved. Um, I actually, You're welcome bike industry. <laughs> I actually joked about road boost happening like maybe two years ago uh, you did you did and it was always so going you're to, to blame i mean it, unfortunately <laughs> it was like it's just for the same reason I mean, it's bikes inevitable went to boost it's you know especially that front wheel the 100 mil spacing was designed around a rim brake wheel so with no rotor no no space allowed for the rotor so wide flange spacing for good tri- triangulation of the wheel um, by putting a rotor there, you're really narrowing that spacing. So, I mean, it, it kind of, it was kind of silly that road bikes ever went the way they did, current disc brake road bikes, and didn't just skip straight to b- road boost, which was kind but of... But, like, when road, road disc side. started, though, mountain, yeah, mountain wasn't quite fully boost, though, when road disc It wasn't started. fully, no. But I guess by the time and this would this would also this would also be like the bike industry if we agreed to a standard. But yeah, yeah, it's very unlikely bike industry. So yeah, it makes perfect sense (laughs) that we're here. But uh. we we can barely agree. Like the one universal constant on road bikes is a 700c diameter wheel, right? But we can't even agree to that. Like there are a bunch of companies that have wheels with rim diameters that are not quite what they're supposed to be. And like, you know, there's, I mean, there's only very recently agreement on what like a tubeless rim profile should look like, or like a rim width or anything like this. It, and it took what, like, I don't know, 15 years for there to be any sort of like real agreement here. So it, so again, yeah, I, I mean, by back the th- to us yeah. just making these decisions for everybody. Yeah. I mean, yes. like by the time all of the companies adopt Road Boost, 
someone will have came out with something else. It'll be mini boost. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> like so it'll, it'll be just like the mountain bike side where we had or we'll go back to like road quick release yeah it'll be just like the mountain yeah. <laughs> look it'll, at this new invention you flick a lever and the wheel comes off yeah and then and then instead of having these little steel, steel rotors we can just use the rim as a yeah. braking surface what a novel idea it's a yeah. 700c disc rotor uh, uh, i will yeah. say so, i mean yeah i will say on road boost i don't know why they're calling it road boost for me it should be called gravel boost because it seems that's where it's most applicable or just to. call it boost i feel like if we're going to go boost put a yeah, 15 just up front boost. and just do boost and that's what yeah, it is like yeah make it all the same but i do feel like the industry has been working towards this for a while like if you look at grx it kind of is offset the way a boost crank is um and then you know new SRAM wide as well the new force wide that's also the same idea that it's offset outward uh so i kind of feel like the industry has been preparing for this shift so what you're saying is don't buy a rotor gravel bike in the next two years until boost is or a thing? buy one now. Yeah. And then everyone refused to buy a road boost. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think this is going to be just like what we were talking about a few minutes ago with the mountain bike integration thing. This is something that for seemingly the vast majority of people is just not going to be a great idea, which pretty much guarantees that it will be the universal, well, pseudo universal norm sooner it's coming, than later. Yeah. Like no one's asking for this, but it'll happen. It's definitely happening. Sorry. <sighs> I will say it yes. was really when cyclocross start, first started going disc pre gravel bikes, when cyclocross first started going disc, it was really cool when you could have your mountain bike wheel set and put it on your gravel bike. Oh, or it, was your so good. Bike. it was and so like, good. You just put a big, gravelly cross tire on your cross bike and like went and beat it up because it was a mountain bike wheel and didn't matter and then you could throw your road wheels on it and it was also great yeah and everything um, was 11 speed yeah uh, everything uh, was 11 speed rotors were all 160 oh it was so good <laughs> yeah. it was so good for like two years yeah i was, was i it. was thinking about this last week i've got an older generation 29er carbon hardtail which is still using 142 rear spacing um and i so was like i was looking at all the bike. super like 60 mil deep aero wheels that i have laying around i'm like oh, yes. hey those will fit so um and yes. they're like the, they're nice and wide these days so i think i might put some 50 mil like yeah some speed wheels on my mountain bike <laughs> do it there you go maybe probably hookless too maybe perfect drop bars bike. on it <laughs> mm-hmm. Ooh, nah, drop bars too revolutionary far. don't be silly mm, okay <laughs> all right well looking for hopefully a, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel uh, we're going to talk about bottom brackets um, yeah. because I feel like it's not a tech podcast without talking about bottom brackets. Uh, Eric Harvey is asking us if he should use T47 or English threading for a custom frame because he's wondering if T47 will become standard now that Trek has adopted or will it just exist alongside English threading? I would, say, standard. Yeah. <laughs> I would say most custom builders don't like T47. Like when it came out, it was this promise of like, you can take this press fit bike that you made and now you can put taps like use a tap and put threads in it for t47 it's really and you don't know how, i know multiple custom builders who tried this and the tap broke inside the frame and then the frame was trash yeah because the issue here is that while in theory t47 is really really good and probably if you are you know threading shells on like this big industrial machine and in, in like an aluminum shell or something like that uh eric you didn't mention what your frame is going to be made of but uh, titanium in particular is pretty hard to thread and T47, the issue is that it's a really large diameter and a pretty relatively fine thread and it can be pretty hard to cut those threads. And like Zach was saying, you know, generally speaking, you, you machine and thread the bottom bracket. Like that's one of the last things that you do. And if you mess it up, that frame is done. Um, that all said, depending on what you want out of this bike, you might not have a whole lot of options because you know, if you want, say, like, let's just say you're building a disc road bike or a disc gravel bike or whatever, and you want internal routing for that rear hose, with very little exception, unless you are running a T47 or something similarly oversized, you can't fit. There's not enough room in that shell. And very um, few customer custom bike companies are doing fully internal for yeah metal bikes that yeah, popping I mean, out around the BB. Most of them yeah. are popping out around the BB, but a lot of them are doing that because there's not enough room to run a hose through a standard English threaded shell. Um, personally, I mean, I do still like the idea of T47, but now, I mean, we have so many good options for, for cranks, you know, with oversized spindles, with, you know, external cup bearings that fit in an English threaded shell that as much as I liked the idea of T47, um, and I think I still do for a lot of carbon frames, if you want like a really, really big tube cross section sort of thing. Um, but for a custom metal frame, I have a hard time justifying T47. 
Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think this is a design uh, design decision um, in that, yeah, it's, it's going to come down to what type of bike the builder is building for you and also the builder's preference would be where I'd be going with this is ask them what they think and why they choose the bottom bracket system that they do. You know, unless there's a reason that they need the extra space of T47, whether it's for weld area or for cable paths, then yeah, probably English shredded is, is, is the way to go. Yeah, I would say in 10 years from now, when your custom metal bike needs a new bottom bracket or a new crank or a new group set or whatever, you're going to be able to find an English threaded bottom bracket, potentially not a T47 bottom bracket. Yep. Like T47 has been around for however many years now, and it's not really caught on. And English bottom brackets have just kept plugging away and still working. Turns out, turns out they're just fine. <laughs> yeah. Mm, weird. I think both of our custom metal bikes are have, English threaded. Have English thread, yeah. Mine is. Yeah. Hmm. Very creaky. Interesting. Um, moving on to brakes. So, uh, reader or listener, Martin. Sorry, Martin. I don't know how to pronounce your, la- your last name. It's Wasty or Wasty. W a s t i e. Uh, Martin would like to know why he has a bigger rotor on the front of his road bike than the rear. What's the benefit of a bigger rotor? I mean, look at your car. It's the same way. Braking power. <laughs> yep. Heat yeah. dissipation to some extent. Braking yeah, power mostly. mostly power. But basically, when you hit the brakes, you you have a weight transfer to the front end of your bike, so you also have more traction on the front front end of your bike. Um, but most of your braking power, I think the estimates were like what 80 percent or something. something but like most that, of the yeah. braking power comes from your front wheel instead of your back. So uh, I guess the first thing that I wonder is, um, Martin, the fact that you're asking this question suggests to me that perhaps on an older rim brake bike, you may have used the rear brake more than the front. Um, but regardless of what sort of brake you're using, you should be using your front brake more because that's where all your stopping power is coming from. Yeah, I would agree. Rear if you like, still have a tendency to use your rear brake a lot and just drag it down descents, then I would probably put a bigger rotor on the back to at least match the front size just to not wear things out and keep the heat dissipation down. Yeah. But yeah, use your front brake more. Couple more questions, then we'll wrap this up. Uh, Jos Verstappen. Uh, he is always. This, I feel like Max Verstappen's dad is. Yes. I feel is like. It? I think so. Well, no, but Yos, no, this are is you Max Verstappen. Well, no, dad? no, Yos has asked a question before, and I think we went through this because Did his we? last name is Verstappen. Max's last name is Verstappen. With uh, an A, isn't it? Ah. Uh, so they're very close. So this is not Formula One driver. Okay. Max Verstappen. But it is a brake-related yeah. question. It is, well, no, this is actually not a brake-related question because he, he's wondering, uh, he always uses talcum powder when installing inner tubes. He's a mem- proud member of Team Tube Inside. Oh, yes. yes. Is support this. <laughs> is this voodoo BS? He said he's always done it but never questioned why. Zach, like, what's your take on this? Uh, I I do it on nicer tires, like on cotton tires and stuff. Mainly, I think maybe it feels better, but that's probably surely in your head. Um, I think, though, like a lot of tires, the inner tube gets stuck to the inside of the tire, and then when you... Say you get a flat and you go to change your tube and the tube is fully stuck. And with the, if you use talc powder, then it, it doesn't get stuck. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I've always done it too. I mean, for sure, you know, we, we used to read things like, oh, you know, you, they roll better, they feel better, you know, fewer flats, whatever. I mean, like, that's I like, don't think I quite yeah. buy all that. Yeah. I mean, um, I would say like a latex tube in a cotton tire rides better than a butyl tube in a cotton tire. Sure, but that but that's because the tube is more flexible, yeah, not because but not it's... because you also talked it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I support. Wait, you. so is this is this is this is the tube sticking to the tire because of heat? So is this a no? Rim I think it's just like the, just... the inside think what, of the tire is like whatever coating it is, it can stick. Just well, and, and I think, and certainly for nicer tires, um, especially with like you know open tubulars or you know tires with cotton casings, I think those casings are inherently a little bit more porous anyway. And then if you ride in any kind of wetter weather, I mean, you, you can get a little bit of moisture, even maybe like atmospheric moisture inside the casing. And it, like Zach was saying, it does seem to help just keep the two things from like getting completely stuck and bonded to each other. And it's just, to me, it's more like a serviceability thing. It just makes it easier sometime down the road. Um, so I still do it myself. Um, one thing I will um, caution some people, if you are out buying baby powder, thinking that you're buying talcum powder, uh, keep in mind, a lot of new baby powder is actually cornstarch. It's not talc. Uh, and cornstarch, when it gets wet, basically turns to like this like glue or paste sort of thing. Yeah. So if if you are going to buy that stuff to use inside your inner tubes, make sure you're you're buying actual talcum powder and not baby powder that's made of cornstarch. Yeah. 
Um, this this reminds glue. me of a very old mountain bike myth, which was uh, you used to get less pinch flats if you talked your tubes. Oh, yeah, for sure. It just, like, moves around when you hit a rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it's, it's like active suspension, right? I mean, like I think the tube, I would the tube sees the rock, it moves out of the way. Personally, like, even if it did nothing, I think purely from, like, a romanticism of working on bikes, like, I would, I still fully support this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, we went well, from, no- we went from having a, a, a pile and a, a little, a little patch of talcum powder on the floor of the workshop, you know, uh, and then we so now have pool a sealant. pool of sealant. <laughs> So from one, yeah, from one mess to the other. Well, now that we have Kaylee's stamp of approval on that, we can move on to our last question of the episode from Twitter user uh, who's, who has asked a question before and still refuses to give us his full name. It's from DJ Halflink. DJ. What, is, what do we recommend for polishing a frame after washing? And what would we use on a matte frame versus a gloss finish? Um, I mean, I'd say like Bike Lust works really good by Pedro's or you want to like get fancy and get some car wax. Um, on a matte frame, I would say use just like use rubbing alcohol on a nice microfiber to kind of get any smudges, and especially if it's white. <laughs> He's also asking about sort of everyday products like furniture polish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've used Pledge before on a frame. I just avoid breaking surfaces. <laughs> the go the go to in Australian bike shops is uh, Mr. Sheen, which is kind of like a a wax based. It's basically, the, it's basically um, like Pledge. Yeah, yeah, it's like a wax. I think it's a little different to pledge. It's it's got like a, a wax sort of sheen to it. Um, it's a furniture. I mean, polish. I think um, like anything's better than nothing, though. Yeah, for yeah. for matte frames, I've been really liking a product from Maxima, which is uh, SC One Matte. Oh, that stuff is so, so good for suspension. Yeah, so the SC One is like a silicon spray. They actually now do a matte specific finish, so it's just a little different. It it just seems to. I don't know what it is, but it it's yeah, it's basically a. A modified version of that that's just perfect for matte paint which um i really like that and it brings up a nice shine on that on the matte finishes um i will say that this is an area that we probably should look into a bit further but um there's a, been a lot of movement and a lot of uh new technology in the automotive industry for like ceramic coatings ceramics and like that uh-huh. um and i've got a few friends that work in the automotive trade that have done this stuff to their own bikes um with great success um so it's probably something we should be looking into soon well i guess i should point out that i actually have had a bottle of that ceramic treatment that i've been meaning to apply to a frame for it's probably been a year now and uh i maybe should get on that when i have some free time which is probably not going to come for another year imagine how much free time you'd have if you just lubed your chain you could have ceramics to your frame already kaylee pop quiz (laughs) what's the retail price on an altegra cassette ballpark plus or minus 20 bucks come on guess guess Retail? Guess. Come on. Come on. 80 bucks. Hmm. I have no idea. Hmm. That was a guess. <laughs> That's all you need to know. I anyway. My, I get my cassettes through Zach. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Kaylee, our resident pro mechanic authority, indeed. All right. With that, we are going to wrap up this week's episode of Nerd Alert. And just in case you missed the announcement a couple weeks ago, Nerd Alert is now a weekly format. So we are getting... We're bringing you, we're bringing you Nerd Alert every week now, not just every other week, and we're going to be alternating between these group discussions and more deep dive subjects that we do on alternating weeks. Uh, so, with that, please leave us a review or comment from wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your friends about Nerd Alert, and if you haven't already, please consider joining our Vela Club membership program because it's stuff like that that really does let us bring you podcasts like this. So, with that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.